Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of Ephesians. The text on which the sermon is based is Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 and going to verse 10. You can find it on page 1159 in the navy blue Bibles in your pew, which is, uh, the page number is actually not printed there because it's the first page of a book, but I trust you can find 1158 and navigate your way from there. And so we begin in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the Word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. One of the questions that pervades our culture is the question of the purpose of pain or the meaning of suffering in life. Everyone struggles with it, and Christians are not immune to the struggle. When the real and unexpected afflictions of life come to them, So much so that some people have been driven to conclude that there is no meaning or purpose in the universe whatsoever. In fact, atheist Bertrand Russell insisted that you have to live that way if you're going to be a consistent atheist. He said you have to get up in the morning and remind yourself that none of this matters and there's no real point to it, which is depression fuel if I've ever heard it, but you have to give credit to Russell that he's far more honest about the results of his uh, beliefs than a lot of people. Of course, the problem, as C.S. Lewis put it rather brilliantly, is that if the universe had no meaning and if there was no purpose to any of this, it would be far more reasonable that we would not even be having this conversation right now. He says, If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Just as if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creature with eyes, we should never know that it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. In other words, we know what darkness is because we have light. We know what meaninglessness is because we have meaning. And that's because we have souls. Here in our text this morning, we will find out about what God has planned for us and what meaning He has placed on life in this world. So with that, let us begin in verse 7. Verse 7 is the banner that will wave, as it were, over the whole sermon this morning that we have been redeemed in Christ. Paul tells us that it is through the blood of Christ we've been forgiven. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. First, let's talk about this word trespass. Interestingly enough, the reason why we say debtors in the Lord's Prayer Uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and not trespasses, is because that's actually a more accurate translation of the Greek in Matthew 6. The word literally means debt and debtors. It's not the same word that's here in verse 7 in Ephesians, which means trespasses. The word has to do with offenses we have committed against God and against His law. Before I go on, if you're wondering, well, if that's not the word, if it's debts, then why? Why does an enormous 
part of Christian tradition, say trespasses. Best I got on that is, is it's probably a holdover from the Latin to the, uh, to the King James. But I, I, I don't have that verified, but that's, that's, my, that's my sort of best guess at that. You'll remember that last Sunday we talked about the concept of covenant headship from Christ. Let me go over that one more time. Adam was the first federal covenant head of the human race. When Adam was standing in the garden, pondering whether or not to eat the fruit, what it means that Adam was our covenant head, it means he was our representative. It means when he was standing in the garden, wondering whether or not to eat the fruit, the whole human race was standing there with him. And so when Adam ate, so did I. When Adam sinned and fell in the garden, I sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression, because I was in Adam, and so are you. And so just as the curse fell on my father Adam, my covenant head, so it also falls on me. We cannot rescue ourselves out of this predicament. We need another representative. This is why Jesus Christ is called the second Adam. Because if Jesus is my covenant head, my covenant representative, that means that when he died, I died. When he was buried, I was buried. When he rose again, I rose with him. And if he does that as my representative, that is not unjust because we are covenantally connected, which is why Paul can say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, that in him, still this same theme of union with Christ being in him, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So let's talk briefly about redemption. Redemption is an economic term that was used of slaves who were bought out of their slavery. This is important for us to know because it means that not only have we been forgiven, not only has the slate been wiped clean, as it were, not only have we been called holy and blameless before Him, we have also been bought out of our slavery to sin, which is where we all are apart from Christ. Jesus Himself said as much as in John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And Paul, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, sounds like he is simply rephrasing our verse in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, verse 7, and sort of mixing it with Galatians 2.20, crucified with Christ, when he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In other words, that we would be redeemed. Have you ever had the experience of wondering why you do what you do? Why you act the way you act? Why you say the things you say? And have you ever felt that your own behavior was outside of your own understanding? Of course you have. <laughs> Paul explains our state before we, don't, but before we know Christ <coughs> as being enslaved to sin, even when we do good works. If we don't know Christ, the reason we are doing it, whether or not we understand it, I mean, could be any number of things, so that we will be noticed, so that we will re be reassured about our own sense of virtue. We are, as it were, stuck in a prison of self-obsession. So how do we get out? Paul's point here is that 
You can't do this yourself. You need a Redeemer in order to give you redemption. God has done it. Look back at verse 7. According to the riches of His grace. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. And so, I want us this morning to focus on God's plan to redeem us, God's plan of redemption that we have in Christ. This being brought, this, this is what brings us out of our sin and misery. And I want to show you at least three things from this text regarding uh, God's great plan of redemption. One, that He knew what this plan would cost. Second, that this plan of His includes everything, and everything means everything. And that Jesus is the point of the whole thing. So let's, uh, let's look at this. We are redeemed in Christ out of our trespasses, and first of all, God knew what this plan would cost. Back at verse 7, according to the riches of His grace, we read, right? forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. That God is rich, that God has riches, probably doesn't surprise you. He owns everything after all, but the language of the text is meant to sound overwhelming. It is, I mean, the, the word for, for lavish and the word for riches, obviously they, the, the, the Greek there means to communicate abundance, but it's like abundant abundance. It, it is the maxed out abundance that the language can use. Paul uses the language of riches and lavishness to speak of what God has done because of our blindness. Let me explain. Have you ever sinned and not known it? Have you ever been blind to your sin? I trust that the answer is yes. You probably are right now. If, if your answer is no, then you probably are right now. It's good for you to pray that God would give you eyes, as it were, to better see your own sinfulness. To ask that, that your own uh, uh, patterns of sin, ways of sinning that go unnoticed or tolerated in your own heart, get revealed to you. Or ask your family if you have the guts. They know. They know. Thank you. Probably the worst part of our sinful condition is pride. We are, as Augustine said, curved in on ourselves. We are obsessed with ourselves. We want God to meet our demands and our expectations. We only want to accept the parts of the Bible that resonate with our experiences. Anything that sounds too outdated or culturally regressive is dangerous, and we assume God must have been mistaken. He really needs help clarifying things, that poor fellow. We are utterly opposed to God in our flesh. That is our natural state unless we know Jesus. We know what He's commanded, but so often we refuse to hear it and do the opposite. And so what has God done about it? He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. In Him we have redemption through His blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses. And here's what is weird. Paul says that He lavished all of this on us in all wisdom and insight. Look at verse 8. Should be the next one there. Yeah. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, that's weird. What I mean is that when we speak of God's grace and kindness toward us, in, uh, we, we might speak of our redemption, salvation, forgiveness of our sins. This is all familiar language to us. And we might indeed call it in our words and in our songs, amazing and merciful and loving and undeserved. And it is all those things. But wise? 
It was wise of God to do this? It was insightful? Yes, but look at the context. Paul says that he has forgiven our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In other words, Paul is saying, God, who is full of all wisdom and insight, spared no expense. The wisdom and insight relates back to the lavish riches. Okay? So God, who is full of all wisdom, spared no expense to save you because He knows exactly how sinful you are and exactly what it would take and exactly what it would cost. It would not require any small or half-hearted measure. It would not be taken care of by stronger, louder calls for obedience. You would not be holy and blameless before Him, back in verse 4, if only you had a little more strength. No. According to His wisdom and insight, He knew it would take the life and blood of His Son in our place as our covenant representative so that we might now call God our Father. Brian Chappell puts it well when he says, the only one who possesses the riches of the universe does not reach into his penny purse to provide a little grace to cover my sin. No, his grace is in accord with his vast riches. The abundance of his heavenly goodness is raining down on me, immersing me, washing me, taking my sin away as far as the east is from the west. So that now, continually and forever, because I am united to Christ, I am clothed with the righteousness of God's own Son. God has lavished the riches of His grace on sinners like us, not simply because He happened to have a lot to give, but because that is what He knew it would take. God knows you perfectly. He knows your sins perfectly. He knows the reasons for your sin perfectly. He knows just how sinful you are. And He knew that the only way to rescue you and secure your eternal, everlasting life, the only way to redeem you, to buy you out of the slavery, was at the cost of the blood of His own dear Son. This has always been God's plan, to rescue a people without hope, apart from grace, and a whole lot of it at that, a whole lot of need. And I want to say, I want to, say to the children for a moment this morning, children and young people, sometimes I know that a text like this and even talk like this can be maybe a little bit harder for you to get your hands around, so to speak, because there are two kinds, among Christians, I'm going to say there are two kinds of testimonies and ways of talking about our salvation. One of them is, I didn't know God, and He did something absolutely radical to break into my life. That radical breakthrough happened three years and seven days ago. You know, This would be the Apostle Paul. He certainly had a story of, uh, I once was obviously lost and now obviously found. Um, and then, quite literally, I once was blind, but now I see in Paul's case. The other one, it goes something like this. I have always grown up knowing God. Jesus has always been my Lord as far back as I can remember. Right? So I don't have a, maybe a particular day or, or what have you. And one of the great sins of the modern church is we have cheered at the first and yawned at the second. So much so that we've come to the point where we actually believe 
that unless we have a very specific kind of American camp experience, we can't know God. Okay? But like, let it not be said of us, right? Uh, as kind as God is to give like, camp experiences, which can be marvelous. But I want to say to you, young people, if you know Jesus and you have the sense that you've always known Jesus, that is an amazing gift in testimony. If Jesus has opened your eyes before you even realized your blindness, it doesn't mean that you weren't blind. It just means God is incredibly, abundantly kind to you. And if you're tempted to say, but doesn't that mean that God saved me before I really, really, really knew what a sinner I was? I would simply say, with all pastoral love, come on now. You sure you haven't found enough evidence of that yet? Your sin? Come on. Just in your remaining sin that he's still working out of you today? You haven't found enough? So children and students, don't forget that being adopted into God's family from your earliest memory is a magnificent gift and glory that a sinner like you and a sinner like me, it's my story too, do not deserve. But God is kind. And Paul says that God, in saving a people for himself in Christ, has revealed to us that this was his plan all along. So that's the next part, that everything is part of his plan, okay? And so, one of the most interesting things about humanity that unites us across every kind of uh, country and faith tradition, religion and irreligion, uh, absence of religion, is that we are all fairly unhappy with our world as it is. Which is kind of interesting if you think about it for a while. All of us, right? all human beings, believers, unbelievers, whatever else, have a deep sense inside our soul that the world is broken and is in need of more than a few fixes and repairs. And so we have this, we're, we're born into this world with this unsatisfied longing in our hearts to fix the environment and indeed the world around us, like not just our homes, God willing, but also like neighborhoods and cities and nations and so on. A powerful discomfort and awareness that the world is not as it should be. Which, to go back to that Lewis quote from earlier, he, he argued that's a strong evidence for God's existence. He said the fact that what, what's happening there is he said you're all, all of you are longing for Eden. All of you are offended by death. All of you notice that darkness means you know that there should be more light. And so it's perfectly reasonable to look around at this mess of a world and say, what on earth is God doing? It's reasonable. Maybe in your own life personally or I don't know, stuff you see on the news. Paul replies that God, in the redemption of Christ, that we have through His blood, is showing us His answer, His plan, if you like, His solution. Let's go to verse 9. This is what He's doing. Making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. When we hear the word mystery, we tend to think of something maybe like an illusionist, something interesting because it is complex or baffling or strange. The Greek word is actually more focused on the aspect of timing. That is, something that at one time you couldn't see, and now you can see it. And maybe that sounds like an artificial distinction. All I'm, all I'm trying to show you is that 
when we say the word mystery, we tend to think of the mysterious thing, whereas the Greek word is more centrally focused on, on this aspect of timing, that one time I didn't know this thing, now I do know this thing. So what is this thing that God has revealed in about 33 AD? The answer is that he means to save the world. The world already believes it needs to be saved, right? We all believe that the world is pretty wrecked. And what Paul tells us in Ephesians is that God has done something about it and means for you to understand it, mystery revealed. So what has he done? Well, to jump over to 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, We impart a secret and hidden, actually in Greek, that's mystery, it's that same word, we impart a secret and mysterious wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the, this age understood this, for if they had understood the mystery, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So what is God's plan to rescue the world? It is the horror and the murder of the Son of God. The crucifixion of, as Paul says, the Lord of glory. God redeems us, buys us out of our slavery to sin by the death of His Son in our place. It is important then that we, from time to time, remind ourselves of how horrible it is that the Son of God was murdered for us. This is more than the grave injustice of the state killing an innocent man. This is man being finally successful in his ongoing quest to kill God. And not quickly either. You might wonder why this matters. Why does it matter that from time to time we meditate on the extravagant riches of the grace of God in sending Jesus to bear our sins by His own blood, His own death? Because, here's the reason, because when you are properly horrified by the crucifixion of the Son of God, understanding that that is what it costs for God to buy you out of sin and death, you will find yourself more able to trust God with a hundred lesser horrors and afflictions and trials and struggles and uncertainties that confront you. You will find yourself more able. How can we trust God with the greatest of all horrors in the world? Oh God, it's fine that you sent your son down to, uh, to, to die for us, to die for me on a cross, to be crucified for my sin. However, there's this part of my life over here that's really unjust and much worse, and I really think you have to answer for it. And so we cannot say God would, God would let His Son be crucified, but He would never disappoint me. He would never give me hurt to bear. He would never give me a long night of struggle. He would never frustrate my plans. Those are much bigger horrors than the Son, no, than the Son of God dying. No, they're not. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. This mysterious plan of God might and look often does fill us with plenty of questions. I'm not saying it's a sin to have questions. 
but the dying, ragged breaths of the Son of God make certain that I ought never conclude that God doesn't care about me. What is the mystery that has been revealed? That God has a plan. That He accomplishes this plan through the blood of His Son. And, as I said earlier, this plan includes everything. Look at verse 10. From earlier in verse 9, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, then verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God has a plan for your redemption, but you are not the point of the whole thing. It's really interesting. The word that gets translated plan here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, yeah, the word that gets translated plan for the fullness of time. Uh, the, that, that word is actually a word used for the management or stewardship of a household. So a plan in the sense of, uh, like, like not to sound kind of too silly about it, but a plan in the sense of like a family budget or even a chore list on the fridge of who is doing what. This plan included the fullness of time. In other words, God has a plan for His household, the household of faith, and it covers everything. Everything means everything. It includes the greatest horrible thing mankind has ever witnessed, the crucifixion of the Son of God, so that we know that God is not surprised or overcome by any other subcategory of pain or struggle or disappointment that His adopted children will face. The Son of God poured out His blood because He is fully committed to rescuing you from all your sins. And oh, what solid steadiness He intends for your heart and mine by this good news. The full relief of your anxiety. Look, maybe not by tomorrow morning, but that is what He intends. The full relief of your worry and your fear that the sovereign God might not care about you. No, He has poured out the riches of His grace on you. He has not been stingy. He's given the blood of His Son to redeem you. He knew what it would cost. He has not answered every question that might confront your heart in the midst of trouble. But He has taken off the table the fear that He might not care about you. That is His plan to save the world. And Jesus is the whole point of it. That's the last point. Jesus is the point of the whole plan. Verse 10, again, as a plan for the fullness of time, and here it is, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has this plan to save the world, and Jesus Christ is the point of the whole thing. Paul says that God's plan with the redemption of the Son, the ultimate end of this plan, is to unite all things in Him. We are blessed by Him. That was back up in verse 3. We are made holy and blameless in Him. That was back up in verse 4. In Him we have redemption through His blood, verse 7. And God means, <coughs> with all of this, to unite all things in Him. I want to talk to you about this word, unite, this verb, unite all things in Him, because this is really fun. It's just a little fun side note. It is a Greek word that is 17 letters long. It's a big fish, Okay. I practiced it this morning. Anakephalalio sastai. Yeah, say that five times fast. It means to unite. 
It can also mean to sum up or to summarize. Like when you get to the end of a long story, and then you say, okay, okay, to sum up, here's what happened. Here's the main point. Let me bring together, let me unite all those little points in the story so you get the big picture, okay? The big picture is that all things in heaven and on earth will worship Jesus Christ. Well, don't things in heaven already worship Jesus? Yes, the rest of us are catching up. (laughs) New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes that it was a common Jewish belief that history was moving through many stages to a climax when everything would be put under God's rule. And they weren't wrong. Paul takes this very idea, as it were, and says, correct. All of history has been moving in one specific direction. It is not the direction of the progress of so-called progressivism. It is not, that, uh, it is not some sort of uh, uh, way that we as moderns define progress. It is that all things are coming under the lordship of Jesus. Paul understands the climax toward, word, toward which history is moving is a climax of all of creation worshiping Jesus Christ. You guys remember Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. God has been doing this, keeping that promise from the moment of the ascension when Christ sat down at the right hand of the Father. And He means not to stop until the mission is accomplished. That is why we want to share Christ with the world and see His gospel pressed into every corner of life for every person in central Louisiana and beyond. Because God has always had a sovereign plan for your redemption. It includes not you, but the entire cosmos. Jesus means to unite or sum up the entire cosmos in Him. Because Jesus understands how disordered our world is. How disunited our world is. I mean, as I said earlier, does anyone need to be sold on the idea that the world is in chaos, right? It always has been. We are getting some interesting, distinctive flavors of chaos these days in our historical moment, but there's chaos through all generations. There's chaos in society and culture, and there's even chaos internally in people, right? I mean, tell me if you've ever heard something like this before in your life. I don't know who I am. I'm trying to find myself. Right? I need to get away so I can get in touch with who I really am. That's chaos on the inside that you don't know what to do with. How could we be so mixed up we don't even know ourselves? The answer is because apart from Christ, we fall apart. Because God is summing up everything in Christ He is the answer to the chaos of our day and the chaos in you. And so as has been said before, there are two options before us as people. As a a people, I mean as a church, as a city, as a nation, as a world. And those options are Christ or chaos. John Calvin writes, Paul wants to teach us that outside Christ, everything is chaos and disorder, but that through Him all things have been Properly arranged, right? What a rather Presbyterian way of putting it. (laughs) We are redeemed. We are redeemed. God knew what it would cost. It's all part of His plan. Jesus Christ, the great King of kings and Lord of lords, is the point of the whole thing. What this means is that you and I are made to worship Jesus. 
That is the point of all history, to know and worship Jesus Christ. That's hard to believe because history is full of some really rotten nonsense, especially when you start reading about rulers and kings and powerful people, right? Wicked kings, wicked emperors, corrupt governors, worthless mayors, even incompetent presidents. And yet it is interesting to note that our stories and fairy tales tend to come back around to a theme of a good king who comes to set all things right at just the right time. Why is this idea still in all of our stories and movies? It's like we can't shake it. It makes no sense. If you read history, you know, we should be far more cynical about the idea of trusting the plans and healing power of a good king when a good king finally shows up. Perhaps it is because there is a memory in all of us, coded deeper than our DNA, when we remember standing before a king, eating forbidden fruit, facing the terror of judgment, and hearing that one day the head of a serpent would be crushed by a wounded heel. Jesus Christ was pulled apart so that all things could come together in Him. He was torn to pieces so that we could be made whole. And our God is moving all of history to a great day where every nation will know Him, where every knee will bow, where every tongue will confess. And so when I talk about the chaos and disorder of the world, even the chaos and disorder within your own heart, spirit, personality, whatever, I mean, do, you, do you not know exactly what I mean? <laughs> Would you know then that your king is uniting all things in himself? He will be worshipped to the gladness of his children and to the bitter disdain of his enemies. And you can know him today as an adopted child of God. Or perhaps you do, and you simply have a deep sense that your faith and trust need renewal and refreshment. In Him, you have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of your sins. That is His plan. Everything is a part of that plan, and Jesus is the whole point of it. So do not delay. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, indeed, we ask that You would draw near to us that we might draw near to you. We would celebrate all that you are for us in Jesus our Savior. That you would help us to do this. Lord, we need help. I pray those who are, who are wrestling this morning with any number of things, lesser horrors that have confronted them than the crucifixion of the Son of God, but still deeply, deeply painful, heavy burdens to bear. Would you minister to them now by feeding them? Here is your table. In Jesus' name, amen.